There we go. Well, good morning again. Grab your Bibles. To uh, We're going to go to the reading of our text, Matthew chapter 6. We'll beginning in verse 5 and then reading through the end of verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a paperback one in the pew back in front of you. And if you don't own one, that's our gift to you this morning. Matthew chapter 6, when you get to verse 5, look up at me and say, He is good. All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading, I'll say, This is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond with, Thanks be to God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they may be seen by, as they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you hear, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're glad that you're here and hopefully you have your Bible in front of you. Um, just really quickly, on um, behalf of my family and uh, Tyler and Kayla and their family, um, I grew up a preacher's kid, and so I've seen this church thing. It's kind of like the government and hot dogs. You know, you just don't want to see how it's made, but you participate in it kind of a thing. And so I've seen the background on a lot of stuff, and um, our families feel loved and cared for in a way here at this church that is... Um, really beyond words and recognition. And the reason why I don't like Pastor's Appreciation Month is because um, there are people in the nursery right now. There are people who've planned all week for Kids Side at Westside. Frankie Moe's been here all week. The greeting team was out front, and there was probably 30 volunteers that have been doing things today. And that's what makes Westside what it is. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for you who love Christ and consider Westside to be your home, Um, You are what makes this place what it is. And one of my heroes, Spurgeon, said that a man should not avail himself to be called pastor, for it is something not to tread lightly under. For it is a greater honor than being called a doctor. And it is something that we don't tread lightly on. And so I just say on behalf of that to you guys, um, thank you for being who you are and for being a people who um, we love to pastor, essentially, at the end of the day. And so enough of the mushy stuff, let's get into the sermon, okay? Um, We're in a sermon series entitled Jesus Uncensored, and so we're looking at the words of Christ found um, in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, today we're entering into probably one of the most famous sections that is said from locker rooms to all types of things, known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, but our context has been, we learned last week, that Jesus began chapter 6 with, beware of practicing your righteousness, And what he's saying is um, he ended chapter 5 with be perfect, but then he started chapter 6 with be careful. And I love Jesus' tender balance. He's saying um, be perfect and there is obedience and there's things in your life in which there should be disciplines and rhythms, but as you do that, you should be careful. 
And we said over the next three weeks that we're going to have the same big idea. And the big idea is this, I hope you remember it, in my relationship with Christ, what I do is not as important as why I do it. Okay, so next week I'm going to ask you what's the big idea, and if you don't shout back, I'm going to preach for an hour and 15 minutes, okay? All right? So in my relationship with Christ, what I do is not as important as why I do it. And what I love about Jesus is that he's always desiring our heart, is he not? He's, he's always desiring every aspect of us. And he's saying, here's some areas in your life that you can actually show and some rhythms, which is giving, praying, and fasting. We're looking at praying this week. But as you do that, be very careful. And I'm so thankful for Christ because he's so tender, because he knows our frame. He knows what our default settings are, and he knows what we're going to fall back into of mechanical-type rhythms. But as we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about his kingdom. His kingdom, where the rule and reign of God is. And in his kingdom, there's a different culture, if you will. Almost if you've gone to a different country, they ate different things. And they even spoke differently. And um, in our house for the past five years, almost six years, um, we have three kids, five and under. And so we've had someone pooping in a diaper, uh, to say the least, for like five years. People have asked, when are you going to get a pet? And our rule is, when no one poops in a diaper, then we'll think about a pet. Okay? Right? I, I don't need something pooping in the floor. Okay? Right? You know what I'm saying? And so one of the things is also fun, being a parent, is, is watching your kids progress in stages. And so um, constantly, my wife does such a good job, they get through the stage where they begin to learn how to talk. Um, and they sort of go from a grunt, a caveman, uh, 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 right? Like, I want that. And then they begin to use their words. But a phrase that's very familiar in our home that you'll catch my wife or myself saying is, use your words. Use your words. You know, don't grunt, don't throw a fit, turn to jello, or do the stiff thing on us, right? Those are the two defenses of a baby. They either melt and go liquid or they get really stiff, right? And so don't do that. Don't do that, but use your words. Communicate with me. Use your words. And they begin to use their words, right? And, and today we see Jesus um, telling us, use your words. These are kingdom words. And, and we get into this big concept of prayer today. And, and I could quote a lot of people, and there's been enough, and I've read enough this week on the Lord's Prayer. But one man, Karl Barth, um, I think says it best, and it's really one of the only things that I'll quote today because I want to be immensely practical. But this is the essence, really, of prayer. And he says, prayer is the conversation of friends. It is not a mere convenience for letting God know what we are thinking or what we want. Prayer is that for which we were made. It is at the heart of God's plan of salvation. To understand the tremendous privilege and importance of prayer, we need to see in the context of God's purpose to have a relationship with his people. It is not possible for us to say, I will pray or I will not pray, as if it was a question of pleasing ourselves, but to be a Christian and to pray mean the same thing. And not a thing in which can be left to our own wayward impulses. It is rather a necessity as breathing is to life. 
That is prayer. But if one of the things that is constantly crawling off the table when it comes to spiritual disciplines in our life, and I speak for myself, is this concept of prayer and it being something of a rhythm in our life. And so what Jesus does for us today is we'll see the problem with prayer, the pattern of prayer, and then the power for prayer is what we'll see in the text. So the first thing that he addresses is this, is the problem with prayer. And I find it very interesting that when Jesus begins to teach us about prayer, he first tells us how to not pray. He gives two categories of people, but he says, when you pray, again, it's a consistent rhythm that he expects for us. He says, don't pray like this. And then he says in verse 9, pray then like this. And what I find very interesting is that Jesus corrects us before he teaches us how to pray, which tells me this. That proper prayer is not something that is natural for us. Proper, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting prayer is not something that we know. And actually in Luke's gospel, Luke records the disciples saying this phrase, Lord, teach us then how to pray. What I find very convicting is the disciples did not say, Lord, teach us then how to preach. Lord, teach us then how to praise. But rather, Lord, teach us then how to pray. Because God is giving us our words. So what are the two primary areas of problems with prayer? Well, the first one that Jesus tells us is this. Just flat out selfishness. Just flat out selfishness. He says, um, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Remember we learned about them? The masked people who wear two different masks, who use something for their own benefit. And here it is. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Jesus is addressing literally the subtleness of sin. That, listen, listen, this is how bent we are. That we would use something like prayer to our own advantage. Rather than the mere relationship with God. If you've been here for any time, you've probably heard me tell this story before. But growing up a preacher's kid, my dad was a traveling evangelist. And so um, we often stayed in other people's homes whenever we would come and preach for the revival. And it was always like a big, great honor, you know, that the people wanted the preacher to come stay in their home. And so for us, it was more like living in a fishbowl, you know, type of a thing. And um, there's a story told that we stayed in a deacon's home, Deacon Bob. I don't know who he was, but we stayed in his home and it was early in the morning before Sunday school and before everything, and um, we were there eating breakfast, and you've got to know, um, I come from a family of four boys, and we all have very, very different personalities, Um, but my brother Josh is the most peculiar, um, just to say the least, and so, um, like, Josh was, like, loved puppets and all this type of stuff. He's down in Dallas. He makes movies, and he's just Josh. He's just Josh, and so he was there at the breakfast table, and um, Deacon Bob was 
very honored to have, you know, Brother Ben in the home. And so he launched into this morning breakfast prayer that he thought would just shake the heavens to its core. You know what I'm talking about, the, oh, God, you know, just God, and just God, God, you know, and just like... 12 minutes into this prayer, man, you know, we're just dying. It's like 7.15 in the morning, man, you know. And as he is just in the climax of what he thought to be his prayer, my, my brother Josh dozes off, elbow slips off the table, and his face goes into his cereal. And it just spills everywhere, and he starts crying and doing all of that. And I, I love Deacon Bob, thankful for him, you know, um, I'm just not sure that, that that prayer was so much for God as it was my family sitting there at the table, to be quite honest with you. And what Jesus is saying is what the hypocrites actually do is they use prayer for their own advantage. Now, I know what many of you are saying. Um, oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm terrified to even pray in public. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Jesus isn't necessarily talking about the outward appearance of prayer, though that's what the hypocrites do, but it's the principle of what you use prayer for. Like, do you pray in the morning for the safety of your family and then think that God owes you the safety of your family? Because then you're using the very act of prayer for yourself. Or do you use prayer as sort of a Christmas wish list? And that it's more of you talking to God rather than it is you listening. You see, listen, there's a great difference in loving God for what he has and loving God just simply for who he is. You see, the hypocrites love God for what he has. They are called users rather than servers. And so Jesus says the first problem is just selfishness, and that is our human nature. Our Lord knows you better than you know yourself. But secondly, the problem is mindlessness. Not just selfishness, but then total mindlessness. Because look at what he says in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. The, the phrase um, empty phrases is actually where we get our English word babble, to babble from. And so now you have a completely detached different group of people who now their mind is not even engaged, but rather it's vain repetitions almost, as the King James says. Vain repetitions. And now I need to press and challenge a little bit because naturally if you just tell someone to pray, um, probably our prayers consist of, and Lord be with them, 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 and Lord be with me, and Lord be with them, and Lord be with them. Amen. Like thank God God is omnipresent, right? You know what I mean? That he can be everywhere at once because we're asking him to be everywhere. Well, what does that mean? You see, our mind is not engaged. Listen, the gateway to our heart and to our emotions is through the window of our mind. And now what I'm not saying is is that we should be all scholarly and proper. Because mindlessness is just as much in high church as it is in low church. 
Um, I went with some friends one time, and we were at a high church service, and there was a beautiful liturgy put together. And we walked through the liturgy, and we came to the last prayer and confession. And I, there something was off in the beginning of it, and then we got midway through, and, I mean, it was garbage. I mean, it might as well have talked about unicorns farting fairy dust or something like that. I mean, I didn't know, like, what we were talking about here. Like, I mean, what is going on? And so I leaned over and asked my friend, and he was like, yeah, uh, that was actually written by the priest. And so that, you know. So mindlessness is not just about ignorance, but rather it's when you're detached from who you're praying to. And listen, you literally think the quality of your prayer determines the answer of your prayer. Do you think that? Do you really think the quality of your prayer that God has a chart in heaven is like nailed it? Man, she nailed it today, right? I'm answering all those prayers. You know what I mean? But I mean, I mean, are we being honest now? The Lord knows us well, and he's teaching his disciples. And he's literally saying, listen, it's not about selfishness. It's not about mindlessness. But rather, it's about truthfulness. And so then he gives us the pattern of prayer. Now, I don't think these words are like an incantation, right? We're Christians. Be careful, because oftentimes what's bled into evangelicalism is that if you raise your hand and say this prayer word for word after me, then, then you'll be saved. Yet that's not found anywhere in Scripture. That's witchcraft, okay? That's like fairy dust sprinkling on someone and then, woo, these magic words and all that. It started from good intentions to give you a framework because oftentimes in those moments, you don't know what to say. And so the preacher would guide you through that, but somehow it's become like special words. I'm not so sure that the words that Jesus gave us are special, but listen, it's the pattern. There's principles found in the Lord's prayer that when we understand those principles literally leads us to proper prayer. And as John Calvin said, that this pattern lacks Nothing, but rather everything that God would desire for us is found here in this pattern of prayer. So what's the first thing that we see in the pattern of prayer? It's this, adoration. Praise, worship, adoration. It starts, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice the word our right? It's not separate. It's communal. Listen to me. Your prayer life cannot be in isolation for three minutes right before you drive to work. Praise God for your disciplines and praise God that that's your sacred space. But listen, I had a man tell me one time who was desiring a prayer partner that you can find out more about a person in two minutes of prayer than you can 10 years of seeing them in church. Amen to that. Amen to that. Our plural, and then Father. In the Greek that Jesus is speaking here, it would have been the word Abba, which is what little children would have called their Father. Our Father. Do you know how distinct what Jesus is teaching is right now? Um, If there's anything common in, quote, world religions, it's the aspect of prayer. Prayer is, is, is very common. But what Jesus has, what, what, what he's just done is he has separated Christian prayer from every other prayer in the world. Um, a couple years back, I, I read a book called Answering Islam, The Crescent in Light of the Cross. 
And um, it was a great read. I would, I would challenge you to actually read a book and not have Fox News or CNN teach you about religions. Please, for the love of God, read a book or something like that. And so um, it was a very interesting book, Understanding Islam. But um, before you criticize another religion, um, they pray five times a day. So before you're like, you're wrong, they would just ask you, well, how many times do you pray? Right? So, so, so let us not be ignorant and prideful and boast. But one of the things that they do when they pray in one of their morning prayers is they pray the 99 names of Allah that are found in the Quran, all 99 of them. And as I read and read and read and got to the 99th name, there was one thing that was missing. Father. You see, they call it blasphemy. That you should call God Father. That you should know Him like that. But what Jesus teaches us and separates Christian prayer from every other religion in the world is that you have a God who is personal with you. You have a God who knows you. Who cares for you. Now, I know what some of you are saying. The term father actually doesn't help me, Jason. One out of every three kids will grow up without their father in the home. My dad, um, we want to talk about that. We'll be in a, I'll be laying on a couch for like three hours telling you about my childhood, right? You know what I mean? So father doesn't help me. But look what Jesus does. He corrects us. Our father in where? In heaven. Listen, I don't know your story, and you may not have known your earthly father, and you may not have an earthly father who doesn't love you, but listen, I've come to tell you today that you have a heavenly father that loves you unconditionally. And we understand this in the person of Jesus Christ, and he corrects our view. Let us not get so lackadaisical that we can just approach God and call him daddy. Yes, it is true, but he is our father who is in heaven. And then Jesus teaches us to say, hallowed be thy name. We don't use the word hallowed a lot in, in the English language anymore, but it it's, comes from the word holy, which means to be set apart. Listen, parents and grandparents, you want to pray a prayer for those children and those grandbabies? You pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be hallowed and set apart in their life. That he would be lifted up and high. We first come to prayer in adoration. And we think of who God is for me. When I come in this pattern of prayer and we approach God in adoration, I always go back to creation for some reason in my own mind. That there was nothing and then there was something because he spoke it and then it was. And then Colossians 1 teaches me that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that by him and through him and in him and for him, all things were created. And then in Hebrews chapter 1 says that in the past that he spoke through the prophets. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his son in whom which he has created the world. Oh man, start out your prayer like that. And then you'll just begin and just you'll think and then it will just lead you and it will put God in his proper place. See, listen, the key to prayer and adoration is understanding that God is God and you are not. The very first act is bowing the knee and coming into the presence of a king. It's adoration. And then the second thing is submission. Notice that we're not to you yet. Interesting, right? We're not to your babies yet. 
were still on God. 50% of the Lord's prayer is focused on God himself. It's adoration and then submission. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Interesting that the first act of prayer and that the first act of actually true freedom and the first act of actually gaining power is to give it up. See, you can't pray that and be in control. You can't say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but I would like you to do it this way. And if you could do it on Thursday before noon, it would be great because we got a busy weekend. But your, I love the King James, thy kingdom come, thine, not mine. And what you're doing is you're coming before God and saying, He's correcting our desires. We constantly need our desires corrected. And we sing this in our hymns, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, but take my heart and seal it for thy courts above. And then 30 minutes later, we're mad because the drive through took 11 minutes. And it's ruined our whole day. How often do we need our desires corrected? And first and foremost, listen, our desires are for the person of God and then they are for the plan of God. It is through submission and then it's on earth as it is in heaven. See, primarily prayer is not passive, but it is active. Because how is God accomplishing his plan on earth as it is in heaven? Through you. Through you. We believe that the kingdom of God is here and is advancing now. And nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop it. So we pray in adoration and in praise for who God is. And then we come to submission and we put off our plans and we say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's interesting, you can only trust something that you love. And so you start out your prayer with praise because your heart's desires are set on God and whom you love. And then when you love God and understand that he is a good father and has good plans, then you submit your plan to him and then it leads to confession adoration submission and then confession because listen when you see God for who he is then you really see yourself for who you are do you know what everybody's response is in scripture when an angel of the Lord appears or when someone realizes that it's Jesus they fall down as though dead And what does an angel always have to say? Fear not. Why does he have to say that? Because people are freaking out. You know what I mean? Isaiah went to church on Sunday and actually had an encounter with God. Oh, imagine that, right? And he says, I looked and I saw these angels flying around. And the train of his robe filled the temple and he was high and lifted up. And the angels were flying around and they couldn't even look at God in the face. 
singing, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and His whole earth is filled with the glory. And Isaiah fell down and confessed, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with the people in unclean lips. In the book of Revelation, on the island of Patmos, when John is set apart after being boiled alive for Jesus, Jesus appears to John to give him the revelation. And John falls down as though dead when he sees Christ. God forbid and God forgive us of our lackadaisical attitude in prayer. Imagine if I opened up those back doors and let a lion come in here right now. Anybody going to listen to anything else that I've said or what's your attention going to be on? Who's that joker eating first, right? Not me because I'm hitting a fire exit, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to knock somebody else down then run, you know what I'm saying? And who are we to think that when we approach and that when we come before God of the universe, yes, we come boldly as Hebrews tells us, but it's only by the grace and by the blood that was shed of Jesus Christ. And we come before the king and we approach the the throne boldly, but we also recognize that he is God. But the first thing that we confess is this, give us this day our daily bread. I think it's appropriate to put this under confession because what are you confessing? That you cannot provide for yourself the daily sustenance for you? Nobody in this room is worried about a meal that they will eat today. Our brothers in Ethiopia and Africa pray this prayer different than we do. But what about the breath in your lungs and the muscle in your chest that is beating, and the neurons in your brain. It is all a gift. And we come before God and we first ask for sustenance. Because listen, we are not self-sustaining. Nothing is self-sustaining in the world. Except for God himself. There will be a day when the sun burns out of its gases to provide heat. Nothing in the universe is self-sustaining. Everything is dependent upon something, but not God. And so when we come, we confess that we are not self-sustaining. And I think bread primarily relates to sustenance. But I love what Augustine and Calvin also say, is that if you cross-reference this with Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says, man should not live upon bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the very mouth of God. Not only give us this day our daily bread and a meal, but God intervene in my life today through your word, through the daily bread that you've provided for us. And then this, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, maybe some of you grew up and you were taught that if you don't pray this and then pull out here on Barren Road and get T-boned and die, you're going to go to hell because you didn't ask God for all of your forgiveness. Which I say to you that that is wrong and that is a lie. This is not a prayer of justification. You're not asking God to save you every day. But what you're asking for is the renewal of the relationship. Why do you wake up a Christian? As one theologian has asked. Is that something you did? Did you keep yourself during the night? It is something that God has done for us. 
And listen, when I understand that God the Father planned salvation from eternity past, and oh, I can't understand the mystery, and that in the past, God the Son paid for that salvation through the bloody covenant, and He came, and He was human, and He carried the cross to Calvary, and then the Holy Spirit applies that salvation, and then I've got the Godhead, the three in one, working into will to my good pleasure for what Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ that God is willing for you to be kept by him how secure are you I need to ask you how secure is Christ with the father because Colossians chapter 3 says for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God That is good news, but we come before God every day and we ask for the renewal of the relationship. But what flows from that? As we also have forgiven our debtors. Wish he hadn't said that. Notice that it's past tense. Not as we will also forgive our debtors sometime when they come and apologize. For while you were still sinners, Christ died for us. What flows from the gospel is forgiveness itself. We're led into confession and understanding who we really are, but then it leads us to aspirations. You see, the last part of the prayer is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's, it's really interesting. The word temptation actually could be translated tests. And what I love about the last part of the prayer, listen, it's not give me, it's make me. It's not give me this, but make me someone. Oof. It's challenging, right? Lead us not into tests, For we know that God does not lead us into sinful tests, but God does test our faith. And then the last part says, deliver us from evil, which could be translated the evil one. So what we're asking God is to make us the type of people that when we encounter something, to know, listen, listen, the problem is not in suffering. The problem is not in the trial. The problem is our sin nature and the response to the trial and suffering. That's our problem. Because do we believe that God works all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose? Then your suffering is not wasted. But the problem is the evil that lies in us and the evil one. Because as we pray this, we know that he prays on us. But what I love what Jesus says to Peter, oh, he pulls Peter aside one day and he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you. I want to be known like that. I want to expand and I want to take on the very gates of hell and to snatch so many souls that I am on Satan's hit list himself. And he's asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. But fear not, for I have prayed for you. Oh, that's good. 
That's good that we know that our God keeps us in this trial. But it's not, it's our aspirations. We are asking God to make us someone. And listen, one of the great defaults in Christianity is that we ask God to make us like Christ, but we refuse the very cross that He's using to make us like Him. God, make me Christ like without a cross. Which is impossible. You can't have that in your life. And I think if you had a different perspective, and what Jesus is teaching us in this pattern of prayer is that if you looked at the trials and the tests and the suffering in your life, don't fight against them because it's sometimes the very thing that God is using to make you like Christ. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many of your Bibles may have For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. If you have a New American Standard Bible, that's in brackets. If you have the ESV, it's got a number four there, and it puts it in the footnotes. Um, That was added later, um, uh, many hundred years later, from a scribal um, edition, which doesn't take away from the scriptures. It was probably a doxology that was had by the early church. The early church fathers don't comment on that. It's beautiful. Teach your kids to pray it. I pray it. It's fantastic. It just wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. Do you see how it flows? Adoration. Who is this God? Submission. We now submit because we know that he is a good father, which leads us into confession knowing who we are in light of who he is, and then the aspirations and beseeching God to make us like Christ. And then he leads us to the power of this. I know no more verses maybe in the Sermon on the Mount that have been used as a baseball bat probably to beat people over the head like verses 14 and 15. The problem is because there is a little bit of weight there and tension in it. Because look at what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So is this works-based? That if I don't forgive and God doesn't forgive? Well, that's the antithesis of the gospel because... Before you were born, the cross already happened. So what's Jesus saying? I think Jesus is saying this, that the power of God's forgiveness fuels our prayers to God. Why would he end the prayer that way? Why? Why would he end teaching on prayer and then talk about what the application of prayer would be? Because how in the world could we understand our debts that we had, and withhold them from others. And what he's saying is when you properly understand this pattern of prayer, listen, it changes you as a person. And I think that's where the big idea of, in my relationship with Christ, what I do is not as important as why I do it. As the band comes up and leads us in a time of response, we need to think about this. You know what sets Christianity apart, not just in this prayer, but Jesus prayed. You see, every other religion in the world says, you pray to God because He is God and you are not. 
So you submit to that higher power. But when you understand what Christ did for you when he was there in the garden of Gethsemane, and as Luke says, on the night in which he was betrayed, he went to the garden and he asked his disciples to pray for him because he said, my soul is sorrowful beyond measure and he walks a couple steps and he falls and Luke records that he sweats drops of blood because he is under so much stress and he says Abba Father Abba Father may this cup pass from me this cross and this death because I know that I am not one who is of sin but I will be made like sin so that you can make those who are sin like they have no sin see Jesus never had to pray forgive me of my sin but rather when he was being nailed to the cross he prayed for your forgiveness and when you understand that Jesus Christ embodies this prayer And that he submitted for you, that you can then submit to him. Timothy Keller puts it this way. Every other religion says, pray to God because he is God and you are human. But only the Christian faith of all the world religions says our God became a weak human being. And we have a God who had to pray. There's no other religion that would dare say that. We have a God who became Jesus Christ And when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, I do not want to go to the cross. Father, I do not want to die for their sins. Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. How will you ever have the power to surrender to God? To see that God came to earth and became a weak person who had to pray, thy will be done. How are you going to surrender and forgive others? Because he surrendered for you. How are you going to pray thy will be done? Because he prayed thy will be done for you. We're the only faith that believes that when you pray to the Lord, thy will be done. We know that he was down here. And he knows what it's like. And he had to pray. We have a God who was so weak that he had to pray. And when you understand that, That fuels this pattern of prayer. I want there to be a challenge this week as you leave this place starting Monday. There are sections here in the Lord's Prayer. And what I want you to do this week starting Monday through Friday is I want you to spend each day in a section. Section one on Monday being in adoration. Our Father who who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Spend all day there. Just all day. It's very simple. Journal your thoughts. Think of him. Tuesday, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Friday, you get to the power of prayer. When you understand who Jesus Christ is, it will fuel this aspect for what Karl Barth said, as breathing is a necessity for life, so is praying for a Christian. I want us to stand right where you're at. And we would be remiss not to say the Lord's Prayer out loud together today before we come to the table. It will be on the screen if you're not familiar with it. Let us pray and come before the Lord. Repeat this out loud with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, we pray this today 
as you have taught us. May you move in the hearts of your people and may we be a people of prayer. May we come to the table and see the power for prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.